and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Uh, today, we will chat with an intentional performer. Uh, Paxton Baker is a owner with the Washington Nationals. He's an owner with Washington Castles, who are the professional tennis team in town here in Washington, D.C. And he also worked for a number of years at BET, where he managed a lot of people and got to see a lot of the best musicians in the world up close and personal. So we're going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk a little bit about business and really get a good understanding for how not only Paxton sees the world, but how a lot of these elite performers look at the world and how they set their mind intentionally to perform. You're going to find out pretty quickly that Paxton is an athlete. So he plays basketball. He rose. He really pushes the limits of what his body and what his mind can do. And he believes in going toward toughness and going toward tough things. So he likes to challenge himself. He likes to get himself out of his comfort zone. And he intentionally does that on a regular basis. He is an exerciser. So he's constantly working on his body. And he also is a really a deep thinker and, and likes to think about how he sees the world. And he's a, he's very well read. He likes to read books that help him develop his mindset. So Paxton's a fascinating guy that I got introduced to, and I'm really happy I did. Uh, we actually share a lot of common friends when we turned the mics off. Uh, we started talking about some of the people we know in the sports industry locally, and uh, it's amazing how connected uh, the sports industry is locally here in Washington, D.C. So I'm really excited to share Paxton with you. I know he's an intentional human. He's a vegetarian. He really thinks about what he's doing on this earth and how he can maximize his ability to perform. So as we go deep with Paxton and talk with Paxton, I want you to think about just how you can be intentional with your life. And without further ado, I present to you Paxton Baker. Paxton, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, we are strangers, so we're just sort of getting to know each other. So this will be fun today because the people that are listening are also somewhat strangers. Um, when you first got here today, it's interesting. You asked to use the restroom. And in my office, you can go upstairs or, or downstairs. So the floor I'm on, there isn't 
a restroom. So uh, we were talking before about do you go down or do you go up uh, when you have options. And we think we were talking, it's kind of like an interesting metaphor for life. And so share with everyone what you decided to do as far as which restroom you, you decided to use and then why you decided that. Gotcha. So uh, I'll begin, begin by saying that uh, it's nice to be here with you today, Brian. And I'm Paxton Baker. Uh, uh, by way of handle, I am the uh, I'm one of the minority uh, partners in the ownership group for the Washington Nationals Baseball Club, and I am chairman of the founding partners group of the uh, Nationals Baseball Club. And uh, so that's the sports piece, among others. And then uh, I see on your walls here in the office that you've got a lot of basketball. I am a passionate athlete, uh, love sports. I'm a gym rat. And uh, basketball is one of the deep, deep loves of my life. And I do it. I play basketball every Sunday from about uh, April through uh, April through uh, the end of October outside. I have a half court at my house. Anywhere from six to 15 guys on a Sunday that come over if I'm not traveling. And uh, we are all uh, passionate basketball lovers, of which um, Ryan Jones, who I met you through, is uh, one of them. So um, that's the kind of like just a touch on the sports piece. With regards to the, the answer of uh, what did I do on, on what floor I chose to use the, use the restroom on going up or down, I went up. And uh, the easy, I guess, kind of um, backhand logic thinking about it after uh, the choice was made is uh, my life, I like to think, is a progression of ups. And although there certainly have been uh, downs in it along the way, uh, my aspiration has always been to go up. And so... Uh, if somebody said, you know, what's your choice to go up or down to get to achieve something, I would go up first. And on the other side of it, it's, it's certainly easier to come back down uh, than uh, taking the climb to go down and then try to climb up on the other side of it. So I guess by way of just pure options and thoughts, I would probably opt in, in a choice like that to go up first. It's an interesting dichotomy or, or analogy, I should say. And I've talked to people who are mountain climbers and they talk about, you know, going up. And if you listen to people that climb Mount Everest, they, the way they climb Mount Everest is they go to one stop, they sleep there, then they come back down then they have to go up and then they come back down. And it's sort of this constant up and down thing. So uh, I, I've never really talked to anyone about that. So I don't usually start my podcast that way, but um, <laughs> it's just an interesting sort of observation. I thought you were able to quickly give some sort of reasoning for why you did that. Uh, as a basketball player and as a amateur basketball player, um, and it sounds like you also are involved in baseball, I'm curious, what is your mindset when you step on the court? And it could be a Sunday game, but I'm sure there's a competitiveness if you're doing it almost every Sunday. How do you think about your mindset on the court and then talk about your mindset in business and, and what similarities or what differences also exist? Okay. So uh, the to me... For, for uh, Before I get on the court, I mentioned being a gym rat, and I work out in between during the week. I try to get at least uh, a minimum of three, if not four, workouts in during the week. So my ideal, my ideal amount of time, the days out of the week that I work out would be a minimum of four, and then uh, the, fifth, the fifth is basketball. So uh, I do that pretty much if I'm not traveling I do that on a regular basis, and I try to make my gym work, uh, my gym work so uh, solid that basketball is the easy part for me. On the other side of what I've done in the gym, and, what sort of things are you doing in the gym? Oh boy, uh, my the 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 essence of my workout is core, yeah. and so 
I, I really focus a lot on uh, a lot a lot on uh, uh, stomach work, ab work, uh, glute work as well. Uh, for the, my my the core of my hit is pull ups, hmm. and so off of pull ups, I probably have about sixteen different pull up routines that I do that all involve core. So I hold myself up on the bar high. I do everything from scissors to windshield wipers, which are two legs together where you literally wipe them across to uh, leg kicks to the ceiling, scissors, bicycles, knee raises. Uh, I lift, uh, I have a 10 pound ball that I use as well that I lift and do, I have about three different routines with the ball. Uh, any pull up routine that I see, and there's loads of them on, on different, uh, um, apps now, I try to incorporate as many of them as I possibly can. And so if I see something that I haven't done before, like um, I was in uh, Times Square on the on the big screens that they had there, I was looking at a Cam Newton workout for, I think it was for a Beats by Dre piece, and I saw him do a couple that I hadn't done before. And I was like, oh, let me incorporate that. I saw uh, Muhammad that- Ali do one uh, from a 1960s training video. And I was like, oh, let me do that one as well. So uh, I, I, I make the, the core work the the essence of my workout and i try to make my workouts in the gym so brutal and i have like one that i do like one day a week i'll do a two to three hour really really solid hit and i call that the bone crusher and so when i play basketball i want to make basketball the easy part and then along with kind of like my sunday hit sunday is sunday is the place i go where i take my work my week's work so starting on the Sunday after Thanksgiving through the end of the Sunday, the last Sunday of March, uh, this will be my coming into my 13th season that I canoe with the Washington Canoe Club uh, down on the Potomac River in Georgetown. Wait, wait, time out. So from November to March? Correct. So people that don't know in Washington from November to March, being on a canoe probably not the most glamorous thing on the planet no it's rough it's uh it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a real person's the easy piece would be to say oh it's a real man's workout because there's some some ladies out there that are like they're, they're like rock solid and you'd love to have them in your boat it's four to six people to a boat it's the war canoe and so it's a kneeling position you kneel on an eight inch foam and you come across the whole of your body and you pull back, it's it, like the thinking is you're using a lot of shoulders, but if you're using shoulders, you'll burn out quickly. You actually use your bigger body, your, your glutes, your quads, your hamstrings, and the shoulders are a part of it, but literally only just a part of it. And so it's um, during that time frame on a given day, uh, a warm day would be maybe 35 or 40. Uh, but my favorite days are the uh, 20 degrees, 20, 25 degree days. You layer up for it. Like, literally, you, you layer up for it, and there's a point where we, we get out about 15, 20 minutes out where actually people are taking some of the layers off because you get hot. So you are cranking. Uh, the boat's probably moving about maybe 15 to 20 miles per hour when it's, like, singing nicely, and you need a minimum of four people in the boat, and you can take as much as six. Six is, like, the number it's, it's designed for, and uh, it's a 25-foot-long, 300-pound boat. We go out from right below the Key Bridge, out toward the Kennedy Center, the Watergate, out toward the 14th Street Bridge, loop back around in front of, uh, in front of uh, Roosevelt and Columbia Island in front of the Pentagon and come back around and loop back out. That's one route. And then the other route is go out to Chain Bridge and come back down. So one is an hour 20 and the other is about an hour 10. The Chain Bridge is about an hour 10, the other is an hour 20. And uh, I've been doing it for 12 seasons. 
and uh, this winter will be my 13th season. So I do that on Sunday outside of playing basketball, which I do for the for the other part and kind of give my body a rest. But to get back to answering your question, there's clearly a mindset for me on basketball and uh, by way of preparation. So uh, our, our crew, we do like the first three, generally the first six guys get to play. And anybody else is kind of sitting, and then they pick up as they go along. So it's three-on-three basketball? It's three-on-three basketball. It's half-court, three-on-three basketball. It's a very, it's a unique game in that uh, we don't play take-back, and the winner keeps the ball. There's no out-of-bounds, uh, no soft calls. If you make a soft call, you're going to get ridden pretty hard about it. <laughs> uh, we do double dribbles, carrying, and yada, 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 but... But outside of that, it's uh, it's you competitive. Oh uh, yeah, and it's it's a man's game. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Green came out there and played. And Jeff's proud that he never lost a game with the pit. And he only came out one. <laughs> no, he came out twice. Yeah, Jeff came out twice. Uh, Ray Hibbert played with us for a whole summer, and uh, we uh, we have a lot of guys that play pro ball in the area. Yeah. That, that play pro ball in Europe, and when they're home for the summer, they come out and play with us. Uh, Phil Goss, Mike Creppy Jr. Uh, Julian Vaughn's been over. A lot of guys that played at Georgetown at GW. Uh, J.R. Pinnock, uh, boy, Pops Mitsubansu. Uh Chris Monroe, we call him the president. Uh, uh, president Monroe is, is his handle. Uh, Chris is a regular. He's been playing with us for about three or four seasons now. And uh, so to me, it's like putting together a balanced team, which is exactly what I do in a business in a business piece of like picking the right team to approach a project, uh, a project or a topic. Uh, so putting together a good team and then assessing the strengths and weaknesses of everybody who's on a team. So it's three-on-three. Three. As I mentioned, it's a really fast game. And so for me, I would want to get uh, a couple of uh, good scorers, uh, somebody who can do a three-point shot, and somebody who's a slasher. Um, I can shoot, but I would gladly volunteer not scoring a point to win a game. And mine is kind of more of a, I'm more of a physical player and set some really good, solid picks. Uh, for us, uh, the game is there's no, no loose ball fouls. So uh, on a pick, you actually have to be set almost in a football position because you can get knocked over on a pick if, you, uh, if, you, if you're not careful. So you like on your picks, you want to make sure that it's a strong enough foundational stance that the person doesn't welcome bumping into you because they know they're going, they're going to take some punishment coming around a pick. And I've been knocked off twice after the second time I got knocked off my feet on a pick. As like never happened again, it never has. So you have yeah, to set, the awareness. Yeah, you have the awareness for it for sure. But putting together a good balanced team, uh, I want to win. Uh, for me, it's like uh, I've had numerous days where we were, you know, four and zero, five and zero, and I call it at that point and let it go. Uh, I try never to leave the court on a losing note. <sighs> Uh, You're the well, owner. Well, it's your court. You make sure that you at least leave with. Uh... Well, no, you can't make sure of anything. I mean, you can <laughs> you can try to make sure by the effort you put out, but it's it's. Um, I probably over the last 13 years, the game's been going for at least 13 years. Uh, I've had maybe only the course of you know two, like, like I can literally count like on one hand the amount of uh, losing times where I lost the last game and called it at that point. Just ego alone doesn't let you go out on a losing note. So uh, it's effort, like, because everybody out there wants to win. We all hate losing. Yeah. Like, literally, 
we hate losing as much and more as the pros that you see on TV. And we take it personal that week. That's what you're thinking about all week, like how you did and coming back to approach it. So for me, it's like being in better physical condition when I come back out on the other side of it. And I'm going to apply my effort with that as much as I possibly can for anything I've ever approached. And for that moment of time, you were inside that bubble. That's what you're thinking about. I, lo- I love it for canoeing because it does the same thing where when you're on that hit, it's biting, freezing cold. Uh, in particular, on like a 25-degree day when you've got a 10, 15-mile-an-hour chop coming across you, going against you, you're in that moment. And that's what I appreciate about sports is that it allows you to live inside that moment and pretty much tune out every other thing outside of that envelope. And it gives you that special moment of time where, where like for that period of time with your teammates, with your, with your crewmates, that you're locked into that moment with them. You share that special space of time with them and uh, you want to win. Like to me, and, and that is, is uh, the essence of sports is collectively putting your efforts together to get to the point where you achieve a victory together. And to me, uh, if you don't, if you're not successful getting that win, I think you should hate it. I think that you should hate that as much as you've hated anything in the, in the, in the whole of your life to lose. I think you should hate losing. I think that you should put your very best effort into anything that you do by way of your pre-preparation and everything that brings you to that moment to get to that special opportunity. You don't always get that. Like, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the Paul to Six uh, championship run that you were part of. It's like that may never come back again in your life. Yeah. It may never come back again. You may only have one shot at winning that championship. So everything that you do that you can possibly do to bring you to that moment, to prepare you for that, you honestly need to do. And so it's it's um, when you're when you're off the court. When you're faced with nutritional choices, when you're faced with choices for sleep, when you're faced with choices for going out and partying, when you're faced with um, a wide array of different choices of things that you can do with your life. If you to me, if you don't do those things to prepare to be able to bring you to that moment, you're cheating yourself and you're cheating yourself out of that opportunity that you may never get again. And so uh, some days for me, like I, I think back over a play that. Uh, a shot that I missed or a loose ball that I didn't chase down or um, a a, a blocking assignment or a rebound that you didn't get. And that was the one thing that made a difference between you winning and losing. And Paxton, let me, let me jump in because you're giving me a lot to think about and mm -hmm. I want to unpack some of the stuff you're saying. Okay, very good. So I want to go back. First of all, the bubble concept. It's fascinating. You said that I was at a, uh, speaking thing last night, and there was a woman there that played for the U.S. women's hockey team for uh, four different Olympics. And she talked about when she was playing, she imagined she was in the bubble hockey. So if you know the like little arcade game that was a bubble hockey, because mm-hmm. she said exactly what you said, which is, when I'm playing, I just want to be present. Uh, we use a phrase in my field, be where your feet are. Um, she wants to be where her skates are. And she imagined that nothing else outside that bubble mattered. Uh, and I thought that was such an interesting analogy that you just used. Right. The second thing I really want to actually unpack with you is this notion of you're seeing Cam Newton, a video of Cam Newton doing stuff in Times Square. You're watching Muhammad Ali videos doing hard stuff. What is it about you that goes toward the hard stuff? Because a lot of other people see those people and they're like, oh, they're not human. Like, I, I'm not capable of doing that. There's something in your story that says, I want to go up the hill. It's going to be hard. I want to go in the canoe. It's going to be difficult. 
But there's some part of you, where does that come from, this notion of I'm going to go toward an obstacle or I'm going to go toward a challenge rather than away from it? Tell me about that. Where does that come from? Well, we'll probably start with I'm going to go up before I go down. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what we start the Right, so it's going to be easier on the way down. But but what? Yeah. why am I even going to do it? Right? A lot of people would say I'm just not going to do it or um, right. well, they're going to do the easy thing first. Yeah, I, I guess for me because it's there to be done. It's there to be done. And uh, like – if it's there to be achieved, why not achieve it? And uh, I'll, I'll peel back briefly to something before I come because I want to answer uh, both of your questions. Uh, at 17 years old, I was introduced uh, by an older gentleman to a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And that has been the uh, – I was you know, raised a uh, Seventh-day Adventist, which are kind of Christian Jews for lack of a better. And uh, so I was raised keeping Saturday Sabbath. Uh, very disciplined. I was raised an Orthodox something then, so I'm a lifelong vegetarian. Uh, dietary principles have stayed with me, and even though I'm not a practicing practicing something Adventist anymore, it's still very much a part of my life from a discipline perspective. Family dynamic, mom, dad, who who, who passed that down? My mother, my yeah. mother, uh, and she she uh, stopped eating meat about seven years before I was born. So I was literally raised a, a vegetarian and, sure. and kept to it uh, throughout the whole of my life. And there were some discipline principles that my mother taught me. Certainly, um, at one point, remembering whole chapters of the Bible, reciting them in front of the church, yada yada yada. So that was part of the core of who I was as a person. When Think and Grow Rich came into my life, at first it was kind of like, it was a book that was like, no, this is too much for me. It's like, it's like, it was like too much for me to comprehend. And then as I began to peel off different points and pieces of it, the core of it is uh, a positive mental attitude. That your, your mental attitude is the one thing that you can possibly control. It's a beautiful day here in metropolitan Washington, D.C. We're sitting at Bethesda. I'm looking at the Naval Hospital out the window. You've got a nice, clean office. It's bright. Uh, there's a lot in it that just feels to me right and bright about the space that you have here. And even though it's a small space, you've volumized it by way of just the choices that you've made in putting it together. And... Um, you realize how conscientious you are, though, right? Like, I've never... I'll tell you, so... And since no one's watching this, they can only hear it. When Paxton walked into my office, the first thing he did is he went straight. There are pictures on my wall from some of the teams that I've worked with that have given me gifts at the end of the season. I will tell you, I've never had anybody go over to that wall and look at that. So you are someone who takes in your surroundings and observes um, and you know, is perceptive with what is going on around you. Is that also come from how you were raised and just being aware of what's going on, or where does that come from? I think, I, I think something like that is innate because, from a cultural perspective, uh, from a cultural perspective of needing to be aware of my environment uh, as a young person and living through the different changes that I've lived through from a life perspective. Where did you grow up as a young so, person? Born in Compton in 1960, okay. and in 1965, after the Watts riots, my family moved from. Los Angeles to San Bernardino, California, and then like you know, life kind of like goes from there. But uh, I've been I left home at fourteen to go to academy and never lived at home with my parents after that. What so, academy and what was it? Pine for? Forge Academy is a uh, Black Seventh Adventist boarding academy outside of Philadelphia, okay. uh, outside of Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and uh, that just so I left early as a young person and. Uh, I needed to be aware of my circumstances because I didn't have my family to fall back on from a very young age. And then prior to leaving home, uh, the neighborhood environments that I lived in and grew through, I had to always kind of be aware of my environment. 
and uh, be mindful of, uh, as the boxing referee would say, you know, gentlemen, you know, tap gloves and protect yourself at all times. So initially from a protective point of view and then just overall from a, just an awareness point of view. So I want to I want to get to the so the think and grow rich. The mindset behind that is, is that the one thing you can control is your mental attitude. You can't control the genetics of things that just genetically are predisposed in your life from the genes that your parents and grandparents and everybody else, your ancestors, passed on to you. It could be a proclivity for high blood pressure or cancer or heart disease or uh, blood diseases. You can't control those things. You can, through your mental attitude, you can control how you think about the things it is that you encounter, whether or not you choose to smile or not whether or not you choose to say hello to somebody, whether or not when adversity comes into your life on how you deal with it, that's the one thing that you can control if you choose to. If you don't, that's a different issue, but the, your mental attitude is the one thing you can control. So and then the things that go along with that, sound physical health, uh, harmony human relationships, there's, there's, there's 12 principles of, of the Think and Grow Rich philosophy. I want to encourage everybody to get the book. It's a life-changing book. It was written by Napoleon Hill, who was commissioned by Andrew Carnegie to write this book, and it took him about 20 years to put it together. It's a life-changing book. It, like, literally, if you read the book and complete reading it, it will change your life. For the well, book. I've had other people on this podcast who have said the exact same thing. Okay. And I've read it. I think it's, it's great stuff. Who introduced you to it? I don't even know the guy's name. I think his name was Rick. I Someone from school? No, he was, I was, at the time I was living in, in Russellville, Arkansas. Actually, technically London, Arkansas, outside of Russellville, Wait, so time out. You're at 14 years old. You're at yeah, this. That's then, too long. That's like, that story there, <laughs> that story there would be a whole different path of, of You end up in Arkansas at 17? Through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was 16 when I first got there. So, uh, but I wanted to get back to the bubble. Uh because uh, so professionally over the past 20, some, 26, 27 years, uh, my day job was working at BET for the past uh, 20 years. I've been an executive there, just left recently, and I'm back in the entrepreneurial space. But I ran a TV channel called BET Jazz, which morphed into BETJ, which then morphed into a channel called Centric. And uh, one of the, like to me, like great life projects that I did while I was there was I resuscitated the Soul Train Awards and brought that back to air. And for six years, I produced that show. And it was just, to me, uh, like one of those pinch-yourself moments of uh, in my wildest dreams when I was younger, I would have never thought that I would have had the opportunity to to actually do and participate with that. And that was, uh, to me, a, a, just a, a life opportunity that has been second to none by way of opportunities and big projects that I've done over the course of my career. What, why music? Where did music come from? Just a love of music from a child. Yeah. Like literally, uh, my mother at home listened to Negro spirituals and classical music, European classical music, and gospel music. And and then uh, just outside of that top 40, then jazz music, which became the love of my life. And for uh, what, 30 years, I've been producing jazz music series and jazz festivals. And it's grown to, I've done them literally around the whole of the world. And... Uh, in 91, I had the opportunity to work with BET. I was producing the Aruba Jazz and Latin Music Festival. They came down and shot it. And then in 92, the relationship became closer. And uh, we started, uh, produced a music festival called the St. Lucia Jazz Festival, which I did for 24 years. And that began my relationship with BET, which led into producing a TV show called Caribbean Rhythms. 
and uh, did a lot of work with BT, helped them launch the Jazz Channel as a consultant, and then in 99 started to run it. And um, it was originally BT Jazz, and as I mentioned, it kind of morphed. Viacom purchased BT, uh, et cetera, like, and then that led to a whole lot of different pro- uh, professional opportunities, which, which has been one of us. So one of them was uh, licensing the Soul Train Awards and bringing it back to air. And um, during pr- production, I want to discuss the bubble piece because you asked me that one of the questions that you asked, and I'm trying to re-answer in a way, is is around um, things that you can do from a sports perspective that you can bring to real life. So I mentioned preparation. I mentioned putting a, cr- a good team together. When you're doing a award show production, it's generally about a 10 to 12-day span of time. You get to the location you're going to shoot at very early, and you do a lot of pre-production. You've booked what, who your host is. You've booked who your talent is. You've put together a show flow on how you're going to arrange each song that or each piece that's going to be put in. Uh, for Soul Train, we did two tributes. So we like who who the gender was a male and a female. So one year was Charlie Wilson and Shaka Khan. Another year was Gladys Knight and Earth, Wind and Fire. Another year was uh, uh, Dionne Warwick and Keith Sweat. Uh, so like who uh, Ron Isley and Anita Baker. So who goes first, the male or the female, by way of putting the tribute together, based on anything from the popularity of the artist, the songbook they have, based on uh, the talent that you get. Uh, if you think the the bigger tribute you generally kind of hold toward the end because uh, you you're teasing to it as you go along, so you start off saying, and up next and later in the show, it's like CNN's piece of saying breaking news storytelling. Stay right? tuned, yeah, stay tuned because yeah. we've got some breaking news coming for you. So you're teasing to something all the time when you're in, in television. So when you're going through pre-production, you're you're starting to you've put the show together, you start the rehearsals. And there's life inside of that. You hear that some of the talent that you booked can't make it. You hear that somebody that you tried to book a long time ago can make it now. And so as an executive producer, you're managing a budget. You're managing human beings. You're managing a flow. There's a wide array of different things that you're managing. And in my mind, I call that all of that. I would call it inside of an envelope. And so then, I, you know, I'm a father, so you know, I'm talking to my wife and listening about what's going on with our kids. And so you're managing, you may be managing 20 to 30 things all at once. And like for me, that was inside of a bubble, and I would call it the envelope mm-hmm. or a tunnel. And so you're managing all these things in real time, and um, which leads to your second question on, um, you know, why do it? You know, why do something difficult? One and where does it come from for you? Like, I, that's the that's the thing that I want to unpack is like you are choosing to go toward what others would say. You know, I'm just thinking of Ali and Newton or I have this image in my head of you doing the pull ups. And I think, A, it's hard. And B, like a lot of people just would say, I can't do that. Is that go back to the think and grow rich principle? Does that go back to how you were raised, the values your mom passed down to you? or What is it? It's a good question. And well, I like that you pause because right. that's 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 a good sign. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's it's a great question because I, I really don't think I don't think it's necessarily like for me something that my mom like you know like she certainly raised me to be diligent and to apply myself as best I could and to be prepared when I come to something. And for for you know if there's young people listening out of it, I mentioned earlier as far as like the choices you make with diet and whether or not you're going out on a particular night when you know you're training for something that's important. Uh, 
I think every choice that you make just influences what you do. And so for me, it's like everything that you do in the past brings you to that particular moment that you're facing right there. So for you, like in this interview, I mean, you know, in addition to your sports team, you may remember I asked you about your family. Yeah. Because you bring them with you everywhere you go. Literally everywhere you go, your family's with you. And so everything that you do influences the moment that you're in right then. Absolutely. And so for me, it's like, I guess just a desire to achieve, a, di- a desire to drive myself to do something that I've never done before. I don't know what that actually comes from. Like, it's like the desire in one person's heart versus the lack of desire in somebody else's part. Like, you know, what really is the key piece that influences that? I'm not sure, but I would say that I certainly think that's part of what the difference is between win- winning and losing is the desire in your heart to like give that little bit of extra effort. So, so I'll uh, give you two quick examples. Last night I watched the tennis match between Venus Williams and Sloan Stevens. Stevens. And uh uh and then I watched Wimbledon as well with Venus. And she's 37 years old and she's probably playing the best tennis that she's been playing in like years, right? For Wimbledon, it, it she was the longest between a person coming to Wimbledon, she was it was nine years between when she played a couple months ago and this year. Mm-hmm. It's the longest streak for somebody who to make it back to the finals. On a related but unrelated note, when Baltimore Ravens won their last Super Bowl for Ray Lewis, it was twelve years in between Super Bowls, and that was the longest stretch mm. in between Super Bowls. As an older person. 56 years old, I can tell you that desire to stay in the game and desire to still be as fit as humanly possible is a part of it to me, which keeps you vibrant and young and uh, focusing on goals. Uh, one of my uh, dear friends, a senior partner in the Washington Nationals, uh, Ed Cohen, uh, Ed is in his 70s. And um, he's one of the toughest cats I've ever met physically in my life. And I tell him on a regular basis that he literally is one of my heroes. And he's the fittest person, like one of the fittest people over 60 I've ever run across. And the absolute bar none, the fittest person in his 70s. And he will tell you he's not trying to be in the best shape for his age. He's trying to be in the best shape possible. Mm. And so... Uh, I run, uh, broke my finger playing basketball in April, rebound, comes off the front of the rim, pop it, break my left uh, uh, fifth proximal phalanx on my pinky, and uh, doctor says, no basketball for you for two and a half to three months. So I immediately go into a little bit of depression. I realize I can't allow myself to be depressed, but I'm missing my Sunday hit. I can't canoe and I can't play basketball. So what am I going to do? I go out to the park. He runs the park every Sunday. So Ed does. Ed does. From the left foot foul pole, the, the pole, I'm sorry, from the right foot foul pole to the left foot foul pole, runs across. And you're saying the park, you mean Nats Park, correct? Nats Park, Nats Stadium, right, down the southeast on the South Capitol. Not like the park down the street in Bethesda. No, no, Nats Park. <laughs> so from the right foot foul pole to the left foot foul pole, run across, then walk back along the third, uh, the left field line, third base, home plate, and walk back out to uh, right, right foot pole. Do that seven times. Then run from uh, first base to center field, uh, dead center, touch the wall, walk over to the left field pole, and run back to, to uh, home plate. Walk to first base and do that seven times. 
then go up in the right field bleachers <laughs> and uh, do kind of like a walk run up. You said he's 70, right? 70, yeah. <laughs> 70 plus. I'm about to like bust him out on that with yeah, 70 yeah. plus. But up, down, I could only do that one time at the top after doing the run. He does it twice. Mm. And uh, so, like, to me, by way of, like, pushing your mind to achieve something, and when you talk to him about it, he'll tell you, like, you know, he said he, he is he is fear for it when he approaches it because he doesn't know how many more times he's going to be able to do it. But every week he's back out there. If he's not traveling, he's doing it. So I did that for the span of time in between my finger healing before I started playing uh, basketball again. You're in the best shape coming back, I bet. Yeah, I was, I was like I was ready to come back for it. And, I mean, my, my, my win-loss record this summer has been um, probably somewhere around uh, 42 and uh, f- uh, about 44 wins and against about 12 losses. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, over the course of <laughs> since, since, uh, the, since the end of June when I was able to, well, I was cleared by the doctor to start playing again. But but I want to kind of get back to to me. It's like if I see something, I want to physically see if I can do it or do a version of it myself. And from a workout perspective, it's just desire. Like yeah. I want to be in the best shape I possibly can be, and it's a drive to me to be in the best shape I possibly can be in. And I love it. I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do without like you know without physicality and without like you know pushing myself to achieve different things. And I think that if a person can do that in their personal, in their uh, athletic career, then they can achieve it in life. Like when you see the TV commercials for the military, mm-hmm. and you'll see, the, like they're pushing basically saying, if you become a Marine, if you become a seaman, if you become a soldier, that the training exercise and discipline that they put you through to get to to become a Marine, to become an airman, that you're going to be so rigorous and disciplined that that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. That's the sales pitch, right? And then in addition to that, the service to your country and that the person that comes out on the other side of that is going to be a better person because of the physical discipline and because of the mental discipline that goes along with being able to achieve getting through the basic training and then the training on your day job when you come out on the other side of basic training. So when you come out after a two- to three-year stint in the service in the armed forces, you're going to be a better, more disciplined person to approach the rest of your life. And that is pretty factual. You believe uh, – yeah, like you're saying that with such strong belief. Is there something in your life that you don't do all in or don't go all out in? Um, drinking. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Moderation of moderation of drinking. Yeah, and... yeah. I mean, if I had a drink, it, like I may have, like at best, one or two mixed drinks a year. It's just to me, it like it, it befuddles me and fogs me. Uh, my wife and I do a Christmas party, so I may have one drink at home because I'm home and that weekend. But you, your discipline from your childhood to now has been top percentile. You would say if you were talking about discipline. No, no not at all. No, uh, I went through uh, teen issues just like pretty much every other teen out there. Uh, I was a three-time high school dropout. Mm. Uh, I went to talk my way into junior college in Pittsburgh and did a semester of remedial courses to get up to college level. And then took two years off uh, trying to be an entrepreneur in between junior college and college. And then I went back to Temple University. And since then, I've been on a pretty clear path of, of where I've ended up to sit in front of you today. But by no means um, was my life a gilded one of, of like, uh, having a picture of what I wanted to do in college and going straight through college and uh, finishing in four years. I had a lot of people who had that level of discipline 
And um, like that wasn't my path, though, of like for me of like having something like that in front of me. I had a lot of learning issues, like, you know, yeah, like learning kind of like looking back now, uh, learning issues, uh, severe ADHD and uh, being able to like work through different things to get to where I'm at now. But the discipline has helped me work through those issues. I talked about proclivities of like, you know, high blood pressure being in my family, of diabetes being in my family, and of knowing that if I eat too much sugar, my my numbers are going to go up, and I'm going to have to you know start being uh, you know doing the diabetic things that you have to do because you're diabetic. So, so you've gained an awareness of if I don't go down this path, then I may, I may go down a different path. And you said earlier, like I refuse to lose. I I. I hate losing and for you going down those other paths would you align that with losing yeah and so in a sense like your life is a game in the sense that i am going to do everything i can to be successful and i'm going to stay disciplined regimented and keep going toward that because in some ways there's a fear of failure there that it's not yeah. going to happen 100 percent correct that, that, and that's a beautiful thing that you just i don't know if you know like the real of that to me of like the fear of failure like if you hate losing i mean hate losing it it almost prevents you from doing different things that would that you know would cause you to be on a losing path so in my 30s uh like i'm a goal-oriented person in my 30s one of my goals was to be able to bench 400 pounds and um um, i primarily did it through negatives on the smith machine Hmm. And, you know, like you build towards, you start off with 135, then 185, then 225, and you keep building. And I wanted to achieve uh, a 400-pound-plus-pound lift uh, by 40 years old. And I got it the summer of my, uh, uh, I think it was the summer of, um, boy, it would have been uh, like around 90. Seven ninety eight ninety eight summer of ninety eight, and I got it. I was uh, I was thirty. I was thirty summer ninety nine. Uh, I was thirty nine years old when I got it, and um, nine years is that is that right? No, it didn't take me that long to get it. I did it. I, I got it in about three years. Okay. I left to get to it, but on the Smith machine, uh, and I, I didn't do it free. I did it on the Smith machine. You know, you know the Smith machine. Yeah, it's like. like the, you got the kind of guides there, so the weight's not wobbling, mm-hmm. which is you know clearly an advantage you know towards you. But we're not going to discount um, your four hundred pound uh, okay. bench press. <laughs> so so uh, for me, the fear was if you drop the weights, then you crush yourself. Mm. Like there's no like there's no doubt about it. You have spotters there, but if you drop that weight, you're you going to right. So I call that the fear factor of of pushing my body. To the point of of knowing if I made a mistake, I was going to like you could you could like crush yourself. I'm curious because you've been around musicians and athletes that are legends or are elite at what they do, mm-hmm. and you've gotten to see them up close and personal. Are there similarities in mindset between those groups of people, and also in your the way you approach life and? Just give us some insight because one of the things I love doing about this podcast, I bring on – I've had actors, musicians, CEOs, athletes, coaches, agents. I mean uh, TV personalities. I try to mix it up because I really believe that they're all performers. Mm -hmm. Um, But give me some insight into what you witnessed um, and maybe some similarities across fields. So uh, great question. Uh, Really great question. Uh, One of them is to get it right. 
Mm. Uh, and I've been in the recording studios with multiple musicians and then the same thing, seeing stage work. And one of the questions when I've interviewed people in the past has been, you know, what do you enjoy most, the, the studio or uh, performing? And for some people, it's both. For some people, they have a particular thing that they really love the studio or they really love the stage. But one of the key pieces for everybody who's successful is the desire to to have something right and a, a uh, uh, perfectionism, perfectionist piece of like like Earth, Wind and Fire uh, is one of the, my favorite band of all time. And I've been out in the road with them on multiple occasions. They, they rehearse all the time. And each market when they're on tour, when they go, they do a sound check that's almost like a mini rehearsal. And you're thinking, these guys have been 40-plus years in the business. They don't need to rehearse anymore. But they treat an audience in Wichita, Kansas, or Omaha, Nebraska, the same way they treat the audience at Madison Square Garden in New York or the Verizon Center here in D.C. or wherever it is they play. They are perfectionists. They are tight as all get out. And when they bring that show to you, they're, every single night they're giving it every single thing that they have. And it simply doesn't matter where they're performing at. They're all right, so- it. I want to bring a theory to you and, and get your thoughts on it. And I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. It's a book that I'm writing, and um, it's just a theory that I've seen after being around these types of performers. I believe the mindset for preparation is significantly different than the mindset for performing. And here's what I mean by that. Perfectionism, which a lot of people say don't try to be perfect. Like perfect, perfectionism, bad. You know, Stay away from perfectionism. The people that usually say that are somewhat perfectionist. Um, and so you hear a commencement speaker, they'll say, don't fear failure. Don't be a perfectionist. But part of the reason they're giving that speech as a commencement speaker is because they feared failure and because they were a perfectionist. So my theory is that we don't need to be one thing all the time. We need to be perfectionists in our preparation so that we can be adaptable once we get on stage or once we get on the court or once we're in a boardroom. Uh, the perfectionism frees us up to be adaptable. The problem is a lot of people bring the perfectionism to their performance, and that's when they become paralyzed. So when people say don't be perfectionist, they really mean don't be perfectionist when you're performing because that's what paralyzes you. I'll give you a couple other examples of this. Right. Like, in, in, in preparation, mm-hmm. uh, humble. When performing, confident. Uh, fear failure when you're preparing. Be mm-hmm. fearless when you're performing. And this is yeah. one that this is one that, that yeah, mm-hmm. this is one that gets people a little bit right now because of who's in the White House. But neurotic in preparation, but narcissistic when we're performing. And the word narcissist like makes people a little tense. Yeah, Self love. But it is this grandiose self-belief that once I get like and Beyonce to me is like one of the best examples of this Michael Jackson was they were soft-spoken Beyonce still is sort of quiet you know but when Beyonce gets on stage she's a queen right like it it shifts so you need to be able to shift from preparation mindset to performance 100% so I mentioned jazz so I I grew up being originally uh, like on air a, a jazz DJ at Temple University and then my first productions were jazz productions. Uh, one of my one of my very dear friends, uh, Wenton Marcellus, jazz musician of some great great note and accolade. He has a saying called "The music don't love nobody." Mm-hmm. And uh, for, for for rehearsing, and he rehearses all of the time. They call it shedding or woodshedding, like going to the woodshed to rehearse. So the music don't love nobody part of it is that if for him, Wenton is a virtual virtuoso 
masterful musician, the first person to win the Grammy in multiple genres the same year in, in classical music and jazz music, winning Grammys. He's won multiple Grammys. He's won the Pulitzer Prize. He's been literally celebrated around the whole of the world, but went and rehearses. And for him, the music don't love nobody means if he's not tight, if he doesn't know the songs, if he doesn't know the changes, if he's not disciplined when he comes to the stage, he ain't going to be Wynton Marcellus. He's going to be something else other than himself. So he holds himself to that same rigor and discipline. The interesting part, like to me, like the, the question you asked a little bit back about, you know, people, other people's approaches. I've seen, so, so just by way of history, um, John Coltrane would do multiple takes on uh, the great jazz uh, tenor saxophonist would, would like, he would do four, five, six takes. And this is when recordings used to be a lot of money for rehearsal time in the studio because in his mind he didn't get it right. Whereas Duke Ellington pretty much rarely ever went past one take. Mm-hmm. So there's different approaches to it from, you know, from that end. But the one thing is solid is the preparation. When they come to the recording studio, they are very well prepared. And so on, on the, you know, back to Wenton of when you get on the bandstand, you're so overwhelmingly well rehearsed. And the interesting piece with Wenton that I've not seen um, anybody else actually do is every musician that you see perform, every musician, certainly for, for pop, uh, R&B music, everybody's got, and, and I'd say 99% of the jazz musicians on stage, they have what's called a monitor. And the monitor actually lets the musicians hear back in front of them what the rest of the band is doing. Hmm. Now, as time has gone on and technology's improved, they now have in-ear monitors where in your ear you can listen to what the band is doing. And most, a lot of singers use in-ear monitors now. And at first there used to be a cord that went along with it. Now they're cordless. And so literally there's a little, little battery pack behind a singer and inside of his ears, he can. that's when you can see people walk all into the audience and move around because they have inner monitors. And so they're still hearing what the band is doing. Winton's bands don't incorporate monitors. Hmm. So when you see the Jazz at Lincoln Center uh, Orchestra or Winton Marcellus's Quartet, Quintet, Septet, they're all listening to each other play. Wow. And it makes them pay a lot of attention to each other. And so for him, uh, music is a democratic process. And um, democracy in motion is everybody listening to each other and paying attention to each other in extremely extreme circumstances of audiences clapping, great soloists that are like coming up and taking their turn with the solos, that they're so paying attention to each other. In the moment. In the moment. The, the bubble, moment. the tunnel vision, yes. the envelope. You know, going back to the Duke train analogy and by the way I, I went to Syracuse University where it was also cold and they had crew and people would go on the lake all the time I wasn't that guy I was sleeping late but uh, that's a story for another day um, but uh, you know I will go back to basketball so let's take Allen Iverson and let's take mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant mm-hmm. um, so Iverson you know one of the greatest scorers of all time amazing performer did he fulfill his potential I would argue no um, but he had the mindset for performance like few others did. He was tough as hell. When the lights turned on, he had tunnel vision. He was great at being in the moment. Was he great with preparation? There's enough accounts that say, no, he wasn't. Kobe, and they came in the league at the same time. Kobe, he had both of them. So I think you can be really successful if you have the performance mindset. I think you can be really successful if you have just a preparation mindset. But the greatness, the Serena's of the world, the Floyd Mayweather's of the world, the Usain Bolt's of the world, uh, 
Brady, whoever you want to pick in whatever sport, and I know sport best, so I'll stick with that. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the mindset for preparation, the mindset for performance, and they understand the importance of shifting. Um, so that's just maybe we'll we'll sort of close on that note of mm-hmm. you know how are you setting your mind for preparation, and how are you setting your mind for performance? And I want to ask you one last question, and, and then we'll we'll wrap up. You mentioned Ed being a tough guy, mm-hmm. uh, and you mentioned toughness. I'm curious to get your definition of toughness and how you see toughness. Well, well, let me begin to answer that by saying I've enjoyed being with you this moment, uh, this morning, and this moment as well. And although we, like, literally the first time we've ever met each other, it's been a joy to spend the last uh, 40-some minutes with you. And I find you being an extremely engaging person. And uh, I'd love to uh, look forward to building a relationship with you and come back on the show at some point in the future because there's so many different things that could be uh, talked about. Yeah, I let you go. I had a million questions of wanting to unpack. Well, so back. You just... If you have me back, I'll come back. So uh, we'll do it over a salad one day. <laughs> that works for me. That works for me. So uh, I, I guess I mean toughness is it's um it. Before I get to toughness, if I can drop one last little piece in, is one of the other parts of Think and Grow Rich. One of the one of the tenets of it is having an open mind on all subjects, and I think it's ex- extremely important to be open minded. Uh, and not closed-minded when it comes to exploring possibilities, thoughts, things, opportunities. So having an open mind, which which allows you to kind of like be able to pivot, be able to improvise. Uh, one of the two quick sayings: one, everything you see involves not seeing something else. So you see this wall in front of you, which physically involves not seeing what's in the office behind it. You have a window that's open. You see the sky. You see. Uh, the Naval Institute, Naval Hospital, uh, you can't physically see what's behind that. Same thing sometimes when you approach something mentally of you see something or there's a project that you're doing and you're not seeing beyond it because you're kind of so focused on that. So to me, you have to be open-minded to see around something. One of the pieces that I would throw in, a good friend of mine, Dwight Miller, dropped on me, uh, never, see anything, never say anything about yourself that you would not want to be true. So easy examples... You know, I'm clumsy. I trip over things all the time. I'm really bad with names. Uh, I'm horrible with directions. You saying that to yourself reinforces things versus giving yourself the opportunity to, you know what, I'm getting better at remembering names. Or I've started to, because of GPS now, I'm actually much better with directions. Yeah, who do we talk to more than anybody? Yourself. And you listen to yourself and reinforce things inside of, inside of yourself. So uh, I guess toughness to me is a mindset. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, um, it's a physical mindset. Uh, we have a, I have a couple of different uh, Instagram. One of them is Paxton K. Baker. The other one is called Pit Warrior, P-I-T-T-W-A-R-R-I-O-R, Pit Warrior. And the Pit Warrior is what I call a fitness mindset. That, that's what it is. It's a fitness mindset. And so uh, toughness to me comes through preparation. It comes through uh, physically pushing yourself from an endurance perspective to go above and beyond and not settling, not settling uh, for what you possibly can push yourself from your own potential to do and achieve. So that, to me, I guess would be toughness. And it's interesting because, uh, I mean, we didn't talk about female athletes much, but you mentioned Venus and Serena a little bit earlier. But um, one of my uh, partner groups I had the opportunity to join was Washington Castle's World Team Tennis. And I've seen Martina Hingis and um, Alexa Rod- Radvanovich and some of those. Like, and then I mentioned the women earlier on the canoe. Uh, it's like, to me, f- toughness goes across sexes. 
It goes across sports. It goes across genres. Uh, I could have mentioned uh, female uh, performers uh, who are perfectionists, who, who give everything they have, and who, like Shaka Khan, very dear friend of mine, uh, like, I mean, like just people who push themselves and go above and beyond. Uh, Dionne Warwick, who's like soft-spoken, as you mentioned about Beyonce, uh, singing in a really high timbre, but as a performer, is second to none as a perfectionist, and she's well into her 70s now, and she still brings it every night that she comes out and performs on stage in her 70s, in her mid-70s, uh, bringing it. That Bruce long, Springsteen. Right. right. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, but it's like, so toughness to me, Dionne Warwick is tough. She is, and people would never necessarily like think of Dionne Warwick as being a tough person, but she brings it. She brings every single thing that she has with it. And so toughness to me, it goes beyond um, it goes beyond um, sex. It goes beyond genre. It goes beyond sports. It's like it's a mental thing. Of I guess to me, part of the core of toughness is bringing it with whatever it is that you approach. Is to be able to bring it, and part of being able to bring it is being prepared. Love it. Uh, last thing, share you shared Instagram, share your Twitter handle. Where else can people find you if they want to learn yeah, more at, about at you? At Paxton Baker is Twitter. At Paxton Baker, and I'm on Facebook, um, Twitter. I mean, Instagram, as I mentioned, which I'm probably most active on Instagram, is Paxton K. Baker. Awesome. And that's where people can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Great to meet you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Uh, my life, I like to think, is a progression of ups. And although there certainly have been uh, downs in it along the way, uh, my aspiration has always been to go up. And so uh, if somebody said, you know, what's your choice to go up or down to get to achieve something, I would go up first. And on the other side of it, it's, it's certainly easier to come back down uh, 